Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you here this cold first day of March, but it also means that spring is almost here. I think next week is actually daylight savings time, so we get more um, morning time, right? I think so, right? Yeah, so I just reminded you all about that. Um, Great. So um, one of the things that I I often do, um, if you look at my computer, I always have tons of tabs open. My Safari or Chrome page is always, you know, a lot of tabs. So by the end of the week, it's slow because I have a lot of tabs. And one of the reasons I have a lot of tabs is because I'm always looking at reviews. Um, Oh, I'm going to buy this. I'm going to buy that. I'm reading through every kinds of review about it, every sort of review. Um, Get your food delivered. You you know, same. I, what, what, what are people saying about this? I want to know what they're saying about this. If it's a new gadget, I want to know what people are saying about this. So Amazon, oh, yeah, you read through all the whole reviews. And then by the end of it, I can't decide what I want to get because I am overwhelmed by all the reviews. Um, and it's annoying to me. But at the end of the day, we must admit that having something like this actually does help us purchase whatever we need to purchase. Even though it could be tasking, even though it might take a lot of time, it does somehow still help us come to a decision of whether we should buy that thing or not. When I think on this book of Ecclesiastes that we're starting a series on during the season of Lent, it's like a review. It's like a review of everything we know that this man has gone through, a review of wisdom, intellect, a review of pleasures of life, of wealth, and all sorts of things, of work. It's a review. This man has taken an inventory, a survey of his life, having been a man of wisdom, a man of wealth, a man who has indulged himself in all kinds of pleasures, he's now making it plain to us this is his verdict. This is what I think. This is my review. Now, this book is often attributed to Solomon, the king of um, uh, uh, one of the great kings of um, Israel. Son of, he was the son of David. Um, um, but most scholars now say, no, that was actually Solomon. It was someone way after Solomon. It was someone who's taken on the persona of Solomon. Someone who's kind of writing an autobiography of Solomon. Who's sharing what it looks like to have wisdom, wealth, and all kinds of indulgences, and then uh, survey it and let us know what that, that, what that is. So he is writing in the voice of Solomon. And the question that plagues him, the question, the main theme that he's trying to get across to us is in verse 3. And it says, What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Essentially what he's asking is the same question many of us ask. What is the meaning? What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning? What is the purpose of life? In this series, we want to answer that question for you. 
we want to tell you that even in a life that seems temporary, in a life that seems fragile, we can gain substance and meaning. And it's right there in front of us. And this text, as we go over this couple of, in this couple of um, weeks, in this Lent season, um, we want to show you what that is. How do you gain that meaning? How do you gain that purpose? In the verse before, he clues us in to the answer. And, and Kristen read that for us today. It says, meaningless, meaningless. All, everything is meaningless. That's his answer to that question. That is the answer to that question. Just a, a little bit of caveat before we go ahead. Uh, modern translations, NIV, uh, the New International Version of the Bible, use the word meaningless. The Hebrew word that they were using is a word is called hevel. Some translations say, say vanity. Vanities of vanities. But when you look at that word hevel, it actually there's, it, it, there, it packs way more meaning than the word vanities or meaningless. It means smoke, vapor, breath. And in the context of the text we just read, you can say it's absurdity, ephemeral. I can't even say that word. Um, I always say my Nigerian accent. Um, it's a joke. <laughs> but absurdity. Um, so when we read that word, this is the way we should actually read it. Vapor of vapors. Vapor of vapors. All is vapor. What is he trying to tell us? Well, you know, smoke or vapor, it's something you can't grasp. It's something you can't hold on to. Something you can't comprehend. Think of, you know, if you smoke a cigar and you blow that smoke and you try to get it, you can't get it. It disappears. It dissipates. You wake up early in the morning and your breath stinks and you blow out air. You can't get it. <laughs> Or you're outside, uh, you know, smoking um, some ribs, or um, you have, you know, food outside. You know, we, I think there's a video. I showed you. There's a video the next one. Yeah. Looks good. I'm sure it smells good. But try to capture that smoke. You can't. It dissipates. It disappears. Can't do anything about it. This is what he's trying to tell us. This is life. You can't grasp it. You can't comprehend it. You can't get it. The minute you think you got it, it dissipates. It's gone. The minute we think we've figured it out, we get thrown a curveball. Actually, one of the first occurrence of this word is, um, goes back all the way to Genesis. Genesis 4 is the word for Abel. Abel, Hevel, the same word. Um, and you know, you probably know that famous story about Cain and Abel. You can take out the slide. I think I don't want to get people hungry. <laughs> anyway, um, Abel, right? You know the story, Cain and Abel, is that famous story. That's his name. His name means vapor, breath. 
But ironically, Cain, his brother, actually means a very interesting word, means possession and acquisition. And a scholar, Ellen Davis, actually talks about this irony, the, the contrast between those two words. It's kind of like this human battle, this primal battle that we are facing today, trying to understand life and not realizing life is vapor. And we think, oh, life is more about acquisition and possession and gaining. You see, just there with those two brothers, in the history of humanity, we see this fight for understanding what life is about. Is it vapor? Is it acquisition? The writer of this book is telling us the inevitable, inevitable condition. Oh, thank you. Can you tell I'm thirsty? <laughs> the inevitable condition of the world that suggests our frailty and our instability is the very fact that life is vapor. Vapor of vapors. Vapor of vapors. All is vapor. In the book, he actually bookends this, to this, that, that phrase. He starts out with that very sentence and he ends with that sentence, trying to get us to understand the fact that that's what life is about. So it brings us to the very first question. Why is life hevel? Why is life hevel? Again, I think this is one of those primal realities that we see with Cain and Abel, our quest for acquisition. And in Ecclesiastes 7.29, he tells us there, See this alone I found, that God had made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. They have sought out to figure out life on their own, by their own power, by their own will thinking that life is all about possession and acquisition. I think many of us probably have come to realize that, that in the midst, as much as we try to acquire and gain a foothold, there is this nagging sense that the world is not all that it's cracked up to be. That in our very experience, that we also experience that dissonance, that life is absurd and it's fleeting, it's vapor. And I think even now for, for many of us here who may be Christians, and you feel this dissonance, especially when you have prayers, you have requests and petitions of God from, to God and they're not answered, and you're left wondering, does God exist? He's not answering my prayers. Is God too busy to come to me? He's not answering my prayers. So then what happens then when, what, when, when our prayers are not ans answered? We fall into despair, despondency, disillusionment, doubt. Because God has not answered my prayers. Again, the answer is right there. Life is vapor. It's complex. It's not black and white. It doesn't go your way. 
it's not the way you've said it, but there is a way life is. It just is. It's complex and it is vapor. Second question that I'm, I want to ask is why do we need to hear that? Why is that important for us to hear? Check out um, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 4. He says this, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north, and round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. What is he saying in this, in this poem here? He's juxtaposing the difference, the, the, he's juxtaposing the cycle of humanity versus the unending rhythm of the universe. When you compare the two, when you compare the, the short-lived life that we live to the universe, the rhythm, the dance of eternity, it does not compare. We are but a speck in this whole dance, in this eternal dance. What we must realize here, my friends, is that we must take into account our mortality. We must take into account our frailty and the very fact that we are not here forever. We are not invincible. This is why um, the psalmist in Psalm 39 says this, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. But this is just a reminder. We are not in control of of our own destinies. I'm sure most of you here are a talented bunch of people. I think so. Someone just laughed at that. That's it's not funny. <laughs> no, I think so. Some of you are killing it at your jobs. You're great at it. And it's very easy for you to think that, oh, yeah, because of how talented you are, how smart you are, you, that's, where, you know, that's how you got to the place you, you know, in your career or, um, or in your present situation. It might be the opposite as well. The insecurity that you feel, the despondency that you feel like you're not good enough, you're not enough. Same thing. You are not in control of your own destiny. And as we come to account for our immortality, that should humble us. That should turn us towards God. Second point here is that this, along with what I've just said, it exposes our illusions, our illusions of greatness, the illusions that wisdom, power, and wealth will make us happy again, the illusions that these things and acquisition would make us satisfied and full of purpose. This should expose those illusions. I remember in college there was... Um, uh, I, was, I was with a group of friends, and we walked up. We saw a piano, um, and I, I saw, I'm like, oh, my God, that's a piano. 
Let's all run. Let's go play. In my mind, I'm thinking I'm going to show up and tell them how good I am, how talented I am on the, in, on the piano. And I did. And I went to the piano and I played a little thing. I'm like, oh, wow, that's cute. <laughs> and that was puzzling. Why did he say that was cute? And this guy got on the piano and he was a prodigy. And I was ashamed. <laughs> I was completely ashamed. Um, yeah, because what I played compared to what he played was vastly different. And immediately I realized, oh, yeah, I was under this delusion that I was so good, you know, that I was so great on the piano, and then someone bested me. I think as we turn to this book, as we realize, look, at the very, the, the, sm- the smokiness, the reality of life as being vapor, what it does, it exposes our illusions of ourselves. Exposes the illusions that we can be better by acquiring wisdom and power and wealth. In verse 8, he says, he said this, the writer, all things are wearisome. More than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear of its, its, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It is here already, long ago. It was here before our time. It's kind of echoing what he says. Generations come, generations go. But he's also saying here that, yeah, some, we, we love to read. We love to know. We love to be aware of all the things you, uh, that, that's happening. He's saying here that the more wisdom you have, the more foolish you become. Because you realize that it's too much. There's so much. The more you know, you realize the more you don't know. The more busy you are, the more tired you will be. The more you experience life, the more boring it will be. There is nothing new. I remember going to Montreal um, a couple of years ago. Beautiful city. And then I'm um, walking around and thinking to myself, oh, wow, this reminds me of Brooklyn. I just went to Brooklyn. It's pretty much. There is nothing new under the sun. That's what I'm trying to say. I went to Portland, and I'm walking around. Oh, wow, this reminds me of Williamsburg. Oh, yeah. There is nothing new under the sun. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with traveling. What I'm trying to say is that's it's just the fact, this mere fact, that we can chase all these different things, trying to, you know, um, uh, trying to mitigate our boredom, trying to, you know, experience life. But it's the same thing. It's the same. The food is probably better, but it's mostly the same thing. There is nothing new. It exposes our illusions. I think what the role of this book then is confronts us with the stark realism of our world, 
It serves to punch us in the gut. That life often is not what we think. When we think about the injustice of our world, when we walk down the streets and we see um, those who are in need and we are unable to provide for them, what do we do? We see life is vapor. Once we think we've got it, it's gone. It's out of our grip. Our grip. And then thirdly, what it should reveal is that our inability to save ourselves. That we are unable to save ourselves. The purpose of the ache and the dissonance we feel points us to something that can save us. You know that movie, Groundhog Day? Stuck in the loop. Wake up in the morning. Go back in the same thing. You can't save yourself from that loop. You need something outside to come in to save you from that loop. This is why C.S. Lewis says, if I find myself, I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. The only explanation is that I was made for another world. The only explanation is that there is another world. There is someone outside of this world that can save us. One of the refrains the writer would like to use is say, he would talk about under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. Again, pointing to our limitations, our immortality, our inability to save ourselves. We need something above the sun is what he's inferring to actually save us. So my last question then is, what can we do about it? Life is vapor. Life is incomprehensible. Can get a grasp of it. What am I supposed to do then? Nothing. Nothing. In verse 15, he says, What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Our wanting to fix it is part of the problem. It's part of the the, the desire to acquire, to seek power, to seek wisdom. It's part of the problem. But we cannot make it straight. We cannot save ourselves. We need someone outside to save us. We need Jesus to save us. And this is what we see in the very act of his sacrifice, is that he became vapor so that we can find meaning and purpose. He went through the absurdity of the crucifixion so that we can find meaning and purpose in our lives. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, not only justifies us, it humbles us, it reveals our inconsistencies, but it also lifts us up and it gives us meaning and purpose to everything we do, to our daily work, to our relationships, 
He gives us purpose and meaning to our very lives. In Hebrews 12, 24, the writer says, um, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus is able to account for our needs, to account for our sins, and to justify and give us purpose for our lives. So that when we find ourselves in despair, in despondency, when we find ourselves experiencing those dissonance, we can remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not worry what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about your clothes. Do not worry. But first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. When you find yourself trying to understand the inconsistencies of your life, the despair that you might be experiencing, When you turn to Jesus, he alone is able to make sense out of it. And even now as we call up the worship team, I'm going to read this poem by Wendell Berry called The Peace of Wild Things. And it's kind of a remember that, yes, there is despair in our world, that we can rest and be assured that Jesus will account for it. This is what he says. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's life may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake and rest in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light for a time. I rest in the grace of the world, and I'm free. Let's pray. God, I pray for every one of us here now that may be experiencing that kind of despair, anxiety, fear, insecurity, whatever it may be, that we may rest in your beauty, that we may rest in the fact that you have given your lives for us, that we may rest in you, that when we feel the despair of loneliness or the despair of meaninglessness, help us to find rest. In Jesus' name. Amen.